keeps on slipping, slipping into the future. A strike deadline is approaching and close to 150,000 federal public civil servants could be off the job right across the country from taxes and passports to the Coast Guard and a large number of those government services all could be impacted. The impacts could be huge. Well, Jamie Mills is PSAC's Regional Executive VP for British Columbia. Jamie joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot for having me, Bruce. You know, uh, i got to ask the question straight up. What's your confidence level that uh, there could be a deal or maybe a cooling-off period uh, reached before that midnight uh, deadline tomorrow? Well, I'm confident that our teams are ready, willing, and able to bargain late into tonight and straight through into 9 o'clock tomorrow. It's really going to be incumbent of the employer coming to the table with a respectful mandate. Uh, We still do have a few major outstanding issues, uh, which I'm sure we'd get into, uh, which include, you know, uh, a a gap on wages that we're looking to ensure that we keep up with the cost of living, uh, job security, and as well, remote work language. How close are we, do you think, on those things? I I know close could be uh, measured in terms of numbers, but do you have a feeling that this is something that can be resolved in a day and a bit? Well, the fact that our teams are still at the table means that we're ready, willing, and able to bargain, uh, and that the employer is obviously making some positive moves. Uh, But as our national president, Chris Aylward, said today, if the moves aren't significant enough on a couple of those key issues, we will be on strike Wednesday morning. Yeah, well, and the Trudeau government already says uh, the tax deadline is not going to change, which to me kind of is a suggestion of uh, them thinking, well, we're prepared to legislate you back to work if you end up uh, going on strike or we could bring it to binding arbitration. Uh, We're not all that terribly worried. What do you think? Unfortunately, binding arbitration is not a possibility. That would take agreement uh, on both parties. And we decided prior to this round we would not be looking at binding arbitration. Uh, If this minority government thinks that return to work legislation is a smart idea with their massive amount of employees, you know, that's that's really going to be on them. A lot of us really don't know exactly what that means when we talk about uh, PSAC members. So run us uh, through some of the services, things they end up uh, doing that impact our daily lives. Well, our members work coast to coast to coast. Uh, PSAC members work more than just in the federal public service, but some of the federal public service jobs uh, that could be impacted by a strike on Wednesday could be uh, employment insurance, passports, uh, immigration. You called the the tax department in its entirety, including the call center. Um, You know, we've got administrative staff working at the border, so there could be disruptions there. We've also got folks working on military bases Uh, who do environmental monitoring. Uh, We've got folks that work at the Coast Guard, Veterans Affairs. Uh, If it's a federal public service, PSAC members are there supporting Canadians. Are these jobs that managers could just step in and do, or are the managers also part of the same same negotiation? Uh, So for the most part, management would be excluded. Would they be able to just jump in and do some of these positions? Uh, I would say first and foremost, not at all. They've got a different skill set. And a lot of the jobs that our members do are technical jobs. We've got tradespeople. We've got uh, all kinds of technical service. Even in the administrative side, there's a lot of uh, technical aspects uh, associated with it. We're going to see a shutdown if we see anything at all. Okay, well, there you go. Jamie Mills uh, is PSAC's Regional Executive VP for British Columbia. Jamie, if they're... uh is a strike if there is uh, that shutdown 
Um, what uh, sort of impacts would be the first ones that people might end up seeing, do you think? Well, like I said, it's uh, it's likely to be a general strike of our members on Wednesday. Should the employer not come back to the table with a respectful mandate, uh, you're trying to call the, the tax office, you're not going to get through. Passport offices will be closed except for absolute emergencies, employment insurance, immigration. Uh, there's also the potential there could be interruptions to the trade and supply uh, system with slowdowns at ports or harbors or potentially airports as well. I know PSAC must uh, closely follow other public service uh, unions across the country, the provincial ones, and uh, seen some of the recent settlements. Where do the federal public civil servants uh, stand up compared to some of the contracts and what's being offered to their provincial counterparts? Well, we've been in negotiations now for almost two years. And when we put our wage proposal forward specifically, uh, we were looking at 4.5% per year, 21, 22, 23 for an overall economic increase of 13.5%. You know, when we initially made that, that was before inflation had hit 40-year highs, and inflation is actually 13.8% over that period. So I think what we're asking for is reasonable, if nothing else. Jamie, do you think you have uh, public support for this one? Well, knowing how high inflation's been, what we're looking at there, a wage increase that's quite in line with inflation, uh, the labor movement has done this for decades and decades. We bring the bottom up for everybody else. Uh, a fair, comprehensive wage uh, proposal from the employer now uh, really will will benefit everyone, including other unions and folks in the private sector. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for taking time ahead of that uh, strike deadline, that big deadline for tomorrow, Tuesday at midnight going into uh, Wednesday morning Eastern time. Uh, Jamie Mills, PSAC Regional Executive Vice President for BC. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Well, it could be an interesting meeting tonight in Surrey. You see, Mayor Brenda Locke is holding the first council meeting since she suggested back on April 5th that mayors around Metro Vancouver agreed that the B.C. government should allow Surrey to stop its police transition, the one that would go from Surrey RCMP to a Surrey police service. Remember back then, in her statement, Locke said that the Metro Vancouver Mayor's Committee, quote, unanimously supports retaining Surrey RCMP, unquote. Well, that's been disputed by some, backed up by others. Linda Annis is a member of council, and Linda, you've joined us in the past, way back months ago under a different mayor. Uh, Is this the same old, same old type of thing we're seeing with a new sheriff in town? Well, it sure feels like that. Uh, that Clearly, the motion that uh, Mayor Locke is saying was made wasn't the motion that the mayors agreed to uh, at the mayor's council back on uh, April 5th. We've had many mayors around the lower mainland speak out and say, no, 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 um, Mayor Locke, uh, we didn't agree. We aren't supporting either the Surrey Police Service or the RCMP. What we are supporting is a decision forthwith from Minister Farnworth. Uh, we all want a decision from Minister Farnworth uh, soon. Uh, it's costing the city a lot of money uh, while we wait. And, of course, it's uh, you know putting the, some of the other policing jurisdictions under pressure. So they've agreed to get a decision forthwith, but they certainly are not supporting either the RCMP or the Surrey Police Service. Okay, so tonight are we going to see clarification? Is that what you would hope to see? 
Well, I've been asking for clarification now since uh, this came out. I started uh, the the morning uh, the day after, and I've been asking for the mayor to remove um, her uh, media statement indicating um, that uh, the mayors were in full support of RCMP staying in Surrey, and uh, she hasn't done that, and I think that's uh, fundamentally wrong. Uh, It's not correct. It's not accurate. It has no place on our website. And just to be uh, honest here and completely forthfront, uh, we did invite Mayor Brenda Locke to be on with us, but uh, it is Monday and she would be very busy, as you are, with uh, meetings ahead for tonight. But um, there are so many other things that should be talked about right now. Uh, There are other issues that have nothing to do with policing and public safety, but there are ones that have to do with public safety, like the fact that we've had three attacks on uh, public transit this month, one resulting in the death of a teen. Is this ongoing lack of clarification, lack of decision on Surrey Police versus RCMP, is this something that needs to end now? Well, I, you know, clearly there's two separate issues here for me. We absolutely need to get on with deciding what police of jurisdiction Surrey is going to have full stop and we need to get behind that as a group and get moving forward to ensure that we can police Surrey in the best possible way with the right number of officers and I do agree with Mayor Locke she's been calling for new more officers and we as a council have agreed that once we do figure out which police of jurisdiction we're going to have that we will be hiring an additional 25 officers that's not going to solve this problem though there are so many random attacks not only in Surrey but throughout the lower mainland many of them are can be attributed to the addiction to mental health issues and I am calling on the province to get better supports in place for those that are suffering from mental health and addiction issues, I think that in itself will help relieve a lot of these random attacks. These random attacks, by the way, are happening uh, in one neighborhood right now when I'm talking about the ones in Surrey, uh, pretty close to Surrey Central, or as some of us used to call it and still do, Wally. Um, What's going on there? Uh, Do we have a lack of policing or a lack of Something going on in Surrey that makes it uh, very different in that one neighborhood? Well, no, uh, this is not just a problem in Surrey. This is a problem we've heard time and time again about these attacks happening in Vancouver and Burnaby, all over the Lower Mainland. I would absolutely say, though, the police in Surrey right now, we have a tremendous mental health outreach team here. They've stepped up paroles, or not paroles, I should say, patrols around uh, our SkyTrain stations. Transit police are, are doing their part. Everybody is trying to do the best they can, but the root of so many of this this issues relates to mental health and addiction, and that's not something Surrey or Vancouver or Burnaby or any of the individual jurisdictions can do on their own. They need help from the provincial government to help us uh, get through these mental health and addiction crises. And that is repeated often, the same old line, we need help, especially dealing with mental health and addiction. And uh, every government and every layer of government will say, will say and point out rightly that, yeah, that help is on the way. Things are coming in. We've got new programs. Is it enough? It absolutely is not enough. We're not even, you know, cracking open the, the problem. We need to really get a wholesome 
uh, program in place that will address it and get the people that uh, need the help help immediately. It's been dragging on far too long. It seems each year it gets a little worse and a little worse. And now, in my mind, we're at crises. Far too many people are dying from overdoses. These random attacks are happening. We need to get a grasp on it, not just Surrey, but all of uh, British Columbia. And we need help from the provincial government to do that. Councillor Linda Annis, uh, thanks again for uh, spending time with us. Not a small job that you have. And uh, all the best to you and your colleagues tonight. Thank you so much. So order a pizza and some gummies. Well, that's going to be a possibility starting tomorrow around, well, all the areas where Uber Eats is available in our province. So that's the lower mainland places like the Okanagan or at least Kelowna and Victoria. You see, Uber Eats is going to be partnering with Leafly and not the drivers themselves, but uh, Uber Eats will have the ability to place an order through the app and uh, have one of the drivers with one of the pot shops uh, delivering some product to you. It's all going to be starting tomorrow. It's a brand new initiative, one that's uh, been taking place in other markets uh, around this country and in the States. To explain how it all works, we bring in Klaus uh, Kinnearum, General Manager of New Verticals at Uber Eats. Klaus, uh, thanks for being with us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. So this is kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, you're going to be able to make your food purchase. I know you can already uh, shop for groceries and now, and, and you can get some booze, but now you're going to be able to get cannabis products. Tell me about how this has come to be. Yeah, no, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so uh, we started it uh, six months ago in, in uh, Ontario. It was the first province, actually the first place worldwide where a third-party uh, app delivered cannabis. So, so uh, quite, quite an evolution, I would say. And, uh, and we're copying the same model, and we're expanding it to BC starting tomorrow. And, um, and as you said, it's, um, it's the same model. So you can place your order uh, on the Uber Eats app, just the same as you order your favorite food. Uh, you, you do have to confirm that you're 19 years old, obviously. And then um, the order is actually delivered from a legalized cannabis retailer, and it's delivered by their proficient or, uh, provincially certified staff. And they will also be the ones that will check for uh, sobriety and uh, to ensure that you're uh, at least 19 years old. Yeah, Klaus, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the deliveries have already been available, just not on a Uber Eats or a food delivery app, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, certain certain uh, cannabis retailers are already delivering uh, on, uh, on their own as well. So why would Uber Eats want to get involved in this vertical? What's, uh, what's the advantage here? Well, the, the advantage, I think it's, uh, it's twofold. So, so for Uber, it's, it's just, well, it's not just, but it, it's another extension to, to really set Uber as the, the platform where you, that you can use to, to go anywhere and get anything. So like you just mentioned, you can get groceries, you can take a ride, uh, you can get your prepared food, you can get alcohol, and, and now you can get cannabis. So really that breadth of assortment is what we want to keep building on. Um, and for the industry itself, um, it will it will help smaller retailers, smaller pot shops or cannabis retailers that might not have the reach uh, to reach a lot of customers, obviously, through through the Uber Eats platform, because uh, a lot of people have uh, either the Rise or the Eats app. So it allows these retailers to connect with a large audience. Um, and then also, we believe it, it will help uh, get some of the 
um, cannabis out of the illicit market um, because we're now able to deliver as well. So uh, many, many advantages. Certainly makes it a lot more convenient. Some people are probably wondering, oh, yeah, okay, what about uh, people that uh, or kids? Now, I know when it comes yeah. to ordering alcohol, uh, when you do that, uh, there's no if ands, or buts about it. You're going to have to show ID at the door if you go through Uber Eats. Um, sometimes you might have to show it if you go into a liquor store, but uh, you always have to show it if you have Uber Eats. Would the same thing apply to cannabis? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, again, it's, it's actually the uh, provincially certified staff of the cannabis retailer that is delivering the order, and um, they they have uh, they have the certification. Uh, they, they've done the training as well, and and they are the ones that are checking for ID uh, at the moment that they drop off the order. Uh, and that's the same as if you would walk in a cannabis store or a cannabis retailer today. You would also have to share your ID uh, to to buy anything. And that's exactly the same when the, the order gets delivered. Your Uber Eats drivers in B.C. still have to have their servant right in order to uh, deliver booze. Uh, why did you not uh, have something similar for cannabis and keep it in-house? Yeah, so we in, in Ontario, we did uh, only this model is allowed. And um, we, because it's so new, and so therefore compliance and safety is uh, is super important to us. That's why we kind of copied that model and are doing the same in BC. We we understand that there that we could also eventually um, engage our uh, like engage Uber Eats couriers as well. But for now, we again because it's so new and because compliance and safety is so important, we uh, we're taking the model where the provincially certified staff is is delivering. Is this going to end up coming from uh, certain stores uh, like um, non-government stores, the private ones, or is it a mix, or how does it work? Um, so, so it's a mix. So we work together with, uh, with Leafly, which is an online uh, cannabis platform uh, where people can learn about cannabis. And um, they, have about, they have over 850, 850 partners in BC alone uh, that, uh, that are signed up on their platform and that are all um, and that are all, all adhere to all the compliance and regulatory components that that you need to to open a cannabis retail store. Um, so those stores are we work with Leafly and we onboard uh, those kind of stores on the platform. Currently, we have 13 stores are going live tomorrow across Vancouver, uh, New Westminster, and I think uh, one store in Victoria as well. I think two stores actually. Um, so that's only 13 stores, but obviously we want we want to scale up quickly. In Ontario, we went from three to 80 stores within five or six months. So our goal is for uh, for all of the people in BC that have access to Uber Eats to also have access to cannabis delivery. Oh, okay. So that's uh, your KPI, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We want to make sure that uh, I mean that everybody can order. Uh, can order from a, a legalized uh, cannabis retailer um, as soon as possible. Obviously, we need to uh, we need to make sure that operationally we uh, we get ready. But but that's definitely the goal. Have you run this by through any of the cities or municipalities uh, that you're going to be operating or offering uh, cannabis? Not you, but uh, through the app, they can offer cannabis deliveries. Have you heard anything back from governments, local governments? Um, we have run it by Health Canada, so we've notified them of our plans. 
Um, and we've also notified the uh, uh, BC uh, government. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's those are two uh, levels that we went to. Okay, well, we can always check up with the cities and municipalities and see if it's okay with them. Don't worry, we'll do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, where do we go from here? What's the future? Um, on cannabis delivery specifically or on delivery? On cannabis deliveries, is it going to be a big part of the model? Um, so, obviously, it really depends on if if uh, if, if consumers are using it. Uh, I do I do have to say I, I heard you mentioning earlier that it's it's live in the U.S. Uh, it's actually not live in the U.S. yet. It's it's really only in Ontario and BC. Um, and obviously, if there are other provinces that have a legal framework that would support this model we would definitely look to expand in other provinces as well. That's not currently on the horizon, but um, to the question, where does this go? It it really, for us, it's just another way of of positioning the Uber platform as as the one platform that that you can get anything uh, on and and go anywhere with. So there's no no deeper reason uh, for uh, cannabis specifically, but again, to really have a really... Uh, a a big breath of assortment when it comes to delivery. Klaus, very interesting times indeed. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you for your time. This afternoon, the Vancouver Airport has announced it's investing $40 million into a plan to avoid that travel chaos during extreme weather. What travel chaos, you might be saying? Well, back in December, remember what happened during those winter snowstorms? For the second straight day, Vancouver's International Airport doubled as a staging area for chaos, frustration and even sorrow. Passengers who have waited days now to get on their flights sprawled all over YVR, with some still having no indication of just how long they will be here. With young children as well, it's it's tough to keep them um, amused and interested. What went wrong here? Yeah, I want to acknowledge it was a really challenging last couple of days for, for travellers across Canada in airports and at, uh, in, air, uh, uh, in aircraft. On Tuesday, 30 centimetres of snow threw a gigantic wrench into the massive holiday operations here at YVR. More than 24 hours later, a spokesperson finally provided some answers. At times there have been some communications breakdown uh, and that led to uh, lots of questions here on the floor. YVR blames the unexpected snowfall for the cancellations, delays and general bedlam at its terminal, saying the amount that came down surpassed their estimates by more than double. You mentioned that this was in the forecast. Why not over-prepare leading up to it? Yeah, we do to a certain degree, but uh, for context, uh, that was triple the amount of snow that was was forecast, and I don't think anybody across this region uh, could have ever uh, prepared uh, in that way. And despite national spotlight now on the operational failures at YVR, CEO Tamara Vrooman has yet to publicly address the situation, not responding to requests for an interview. I've been crying all day because nobody is giving me an answer. So I've been calling Flair Airlines, and they... what they only said is, uh, well, I can't, what can I do for you? Are they going to make it home for the Christmas Day? You know, unfortunately, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I have to be frank with, with folks. Uh, it's going to be a challenging next few days, and there are going to be continued delays and cancellations. Uh, Global News, that was back in December. 
And to be fair, YVR did come out, albeit a little bit later, in giving some clarification on their communications plans that went awry. And more than that, there is now this $40 million plan to avoid the chaos and improve communications. Well, at the time we talked with Claire Newell with Travel Best Bets, we'll bring back Claire now. And Claire, you've looked over what YVR is planning to make things different the next time we head into this type of weather. What do you think of the plan? Oh, I think this is such welcome news. Anyone who actually was traveling during that window of December the 17th through until the 28th will probably find this as welcome news. I actually flew on December the 23rd, and I was maybe one of a handful of flights that got out. Like, every flight around me I was remember. marked red. You yeah, were lucky, it, but uh, you knew others that weren't. I knew many that weren't. And, for you know, there were lots of lessons learned in that. And, obviously, YVR took this very seriously. The fact that they actually asked for this after-action review of the situation and have now implemented changes. I know it's, a, you know, mid-April. That's not that long to have done that, received feedback from over 1,500 passengers and members of the public, and to put this into play. And they're putting money where their mouth is, and it's really great to see. It is a really comprehensive list of things. They actually have it on their website, which is yvr.ca slash action plan, if you really wanted to see it. But they, they're focusing on five key areas. And one of the things that I think people were really frustrated about was the lack of communication. Yeah. It just seemed like people didn't get the info that they needed. I remember telling people, you know, the airlines are going to try and reach out to you the best way that they can. So make sure that when you've made a booking and if you're imminently flying, that they have the up to the minute contact information. So if that's a cell phone or an email, make sure they've got the right ones and maybe even a backup so that you can get the information and just be assured that you actually know what exactly is happening. Was one hand not talking to the other back in December? So I think that this is going to solve some of that problem. Yeah, I hope so. You know, they they said that they're going to be adding new staff, um, improving training and leverage technology, increased communication, as well as the things that are kind of concrete, like additional equipment that's actually going to keep more aircraft moving in situations like that. But keeping passengers well informed um, and having people on the front line, letting people know what to do, where to go. You know, people were running around the airport and literally did not know what was going on. And people, because they didn't know, they were spending hours and hours and hours before they were finally at going home or, or being told anything. So this is this is good news, and the sad part is is that we know that with um, climate change that these types of extreme weather disruptions may happen more frequently, which is really sad to think about, but it means that the the airport needs to have all of their systems and processes all lined up so that they know exactly what to do in this case and there's i mean there's no way around it there's going to be situations where there's extreme snow and ice and things and it, there's going to be delays and there's going to be cancellations. But if they can mitigate the damage with some of the improvements, I think that's coming a long way. Getting everybody on board with the same information is so terribly right. difficult. Oh, It man. really is because when you think of a plane that's either landing or taking off from 
Vancouver or is, you know, on its way, there's so many other, there's so many factors. It's not just because the plane uh, is, it can't be de-iced quick enough and, and head somewhere. Perhaps that aircraft is coming in or going to an airport that is all also dealing with things with yeah. like bad weather. And that's exactly what happened right across the country. And it was happening almost all over North America, except for a few tiny, tiny pockets like <laughs> Phoenix, Arizona, where I happened to be flying or Maui and Honolulu, where those flights were going. So because there were so many airports that were dealing with this domino effect, you know, you do need different partners and players all somehow getting the information and then passing along to their frontline staff and then ultimately to the consumers themselves. So it's, it is complicated and it's not, I, I wish it was a quick fix and we didn't have to be dealing with this, but I think what I like about this um, and what YBR has done is they they have, they saw what happened. They knew that there was a situation and they have learned from it. You know, if this was, if this, some airports may not have done what YVR has done. They lived it, kind of, it, it happened, and then it just, they're saying, okay, well, hopefully it doesn't happen again. They're preparing in case this does happen again. So it's very positive from my standpoint, anyway. I think so. But one of the big things you'll remember was uh, this amount of time on the tarmac. That was a theme oh. that we heard again and again and again. Terrible stories, up to 12 hours or more, and uh, misinformation or conflicting information. Do you think the things in this plan would reduce tarmac, stuck on the tarmac in the plane type time? Yeah, I think so. I think that they're going to put in things where they will be, they'll ensure that within 30 minutes of taxiing off the runway, that type of like, and if you're, if you're taxiing out, you, you won't have long, long waits. That was insane. Like we saw people, like you said, eight, 10, 12 hours. Um, they won't let that happen again. And I'm not saying that it will never happen. That's, that would be unrealistic, but it would be very rare for that to happen at YVR. If they, if they put, you know, the, the efforts in that it seems to be that they've put into this report. And I think that it's worth reading the action plan, especially for those people who were stuck, just so that they, they know exactly what's happening. But, you know, they're looking at prioritization of aircraft on the airfield. They're going to be looking at making, um, improving the ability to track delayed baggage. Because if, if you were part of that, where you were checking a bag, people often didn't get that their bag for days after they had landed. And they're going to use real time technology. Um, They're going to be using um, a, a new digital apron monitoring tool. And the aprons are those uh, kind of the devices that go from the gate onto the aircraft and they, you know, they retract uh, and pull back. So they're going to be looking at all of these things. And again, that's really going to help with the situation that we never want to see again. No more 12 hours on the, on the term mark. Never, ever. <laughs> Indeed. Claire Newell, Travel Best Bets. Uh, thanks again. Let's hope for better times ahead when we're at the airport, even in the storms. Well, this is very promising in what's put in this action plan. Let's hope it all comes to fruition. Well, promising indeed. $40 million plan to avoid that travel chaos announced by YVR. And it's interesting today, we were told by the RCMP it's no longer to be called the Lower Mainland Gang Problem. It is the BC Gang Problem. 
and that comes in light of charges now laid in a death in Naramata, north of Penticton, back in 2021, where it actually had reaches out to every corner of the province, including uh, the Caribou, uh, the Kamloops area, the lower mainland. We're seeing more and more of this as geography really defies how you could really consider some of these crimes, especially when it comes to gang life and what's happening with gang crime. Well, let's bring in John Daly. He's the former host, of course, of CKNW's Back on the Beat and former longtime Global News investigative journalist. John, I'm so glad to have you with us. My pleasure, Bruce. Good to be with you. You know, it's funny. Uh, To me, this seems like the same old, same old, but uh, the gang lifestyle... Uh, is and the gang interconnections uh, that we mm-hmm. hear so much about in the Lower Mainland, they really go right across the province. But has that always been the case? Uh, yes, but I don't think it's been this severe. Uh, as you said, this reached up to Prince George, where there was a, a drive-by shooting, a shoot-up shoot of a house where nobody was injured. It reached into uh, Penticton, Naramata, and down into the Lower Mainland, Coquitlam, and Vancouver. The good news is that we got three people charged with uh, either first-degree murder or conspiracy to commit murder. Um, uh, Jalen Falk, 23, from Vancouver, first-degree murder of uh, Kathleen Richardson in Naramata. Ekene uh, Anigbo, 23, of Vancouver, first-degree murder, uh, again, of Kathleen Richardson in uh, Naramata. And then this Sharam Toki, 21 from Coquitlam, conspiracy to commit the murder of this guy, Graham. And this is the really interesting thing, uh, Anthony Graham. Uh, he was co-accused with Wayne Cudmore of killing uh, a couple of young guys who are from Kamloops, Kamloops brothers, Carlo and Eric Fryer, uh, in May of 2021 in Naramata. So Cudmore uh, is the son of Kathy Richardson, the um, apparently innocent murder victim in the Naramata killing, uh, for which uh, the Jalen Falk and Akeem Enigmo uh, are charged. Enigmo is uh, associated with the Red Scorpion gang. So it looks to me like this thing all started off with, this, uh, with the killing of these uh, young brothers from Kamloops in Naramata, Carlo and Eric Fryer. And then it seems like these other people were targeting Wade Cudmore and Anthony Graham from Penticton. And maybe Kathy Richardson got killed because she wouldn't give up where her son Wade Cudmore was. Or alternatively, um, you know, they went to the house and he wasn't there and she was a witness and they killed her. Who knows? I mean, they're innocent until proven guilty. They're charged with first-degree murder. Will that stay that way? Will it go down to second-degree murder? Will it go down to manslaughter? Who knows? by the time this thing finally gets to court in another two or three years. The thing I wonder about this, when I start to hear of so many different places involved in different names of different uh, cities and communities around the province, are the police talking to each other, different detachments? I know they have combined law enforcement, but it really is so interlaced, uh, these different communities. Um, what's What's your gut feeling on that? Yeah, I think with CFSEU and uh, Manny Mann uh, from the RCMP being the uh, head of uh, CFSEU now, I think, yeah, I do think they're talking to each other. And I don't think you would get first-degree murder charges and uh, conspiracy to commit murder charges approved and uh, three people in custody uh, if they weren't. 
So, I mean, I think the cops are doing the best possible job they can. The problem is that a lot of these people, you know, are in and out of court and in and out of jail all the time because the court system doesn't seem to hold people. One good thing, one of these fellows uh, uh, got charged with uh, gun possession and uh, he got 33 months in custody for possession of dangerous firearms. And that was good. You know, I mean, that that was like a, a, a very good. Reg Harris was the judge on that. And that was in addition to the time he had already served. So occasionally we do have the uh, justices of uh, the court system stepping up to the plate and actually hitting a home run. And when we start talking about catch and release at the federal level or provincial letter, level. Uh, I think the other good thing here is you can't get politicians now saying, oh, it's just a big city problem in the lower mainland. Now you're going to start to see some of the interior MPs and MLAs stepping up and saying, hey, guess what? This is a problem in my community and we need action. I think we're on the brink of seeing that happen. Well, you know, I mean, in the States, they've gone to mandatory sentencing. You know, so if you get convicted of a particular offense, there's a range of sentences that's limited. You know, you can get 17 to 21 years for uh, massive drug importing in, in, say, you got convicted in the state, say, in Washington state. And uh, we may end up with that. I mean, the legislators uh, may push for, uh, you know, at least minimum sentences on some of these things. I suspect that's the case. Yeah, it's uh, read the room, and that room is getting bigger. John Daly, a pleasure. Thanks so much. Always my pleasure, Bruce. Anytime. Well, the CBC has done it. They're saying goodbye, bye-bye to Twitter. CBC says it's pausing its use of Twitter a day after its main account was labeled, quote, government-funded media, that by Elon Musk's social media platform. CBC's media relations director, Leon Marr, said in a statement, Twitter can be a powerful tool for our journalists to communicate with Canadians. But this undermines the accuracy and professionalism of the work they do to allow our independence to be falsely described this way. Wow. That's a huge move, and it comes after a similar thing in the States happened to NPR, a completely different type of entity, but uh, also labeled with that. Well, let's bring in Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, I use the word wow, but uh, what else can you say? Well, it's uh, look, Twitter is not the, uh, the, the thing it used to be 10 years ago. It is falling directly behind a number of its competitors. And what we see here is uh, Elon Musk positioning more and more conversation around Twitter. So if you're looking at trying to get people talking about your product, you're going to try and do as many things as you can to rock the boat. And one of the things right now when we kind of this idea of fake news or government funding is let's take a look and see where we can get people talking about any platform that individuals will now write and talk about when, in, our, in, our, in our everyday media, which is what we're doing right now. So within the space of CBC being fla- flagged as government funded, yes, we as taxpayers help support CBC. It doesn't mean at the end of the day that it's towing government lines of communication. This is unfortunately more propaganda conversation, more ideas around uh, fake news versus legitimate news. 
And uh, I'm partially actually kind of excited to see CBC take a step away right now from Twitter to see what the end result looks like. You know, it's interesting because uh, I agree with you. I mean, it's Elon Musk uh, saying, you know, let's get a conversation going. But I think it's very short term. And some of the pain that you might find in there is going to be longer term. It's kind of like burning the furniture to heat the cabin. I mean, once you start doing this, what else do you have in your toolbox? KCBC okay, is gone. He's uh, picked on the me- mainstream media. He's uh, done so many things in his attempt. He says, well, people are now talking about Twitter. This is successful. But is it? Do you think this is working, Jesse? No, not for not for Twitter, not at all, and not for Elon Musk either. I think Musk's long-term play with Twitter is to get the majority of users kind of into a space where we see a huge devaluation, and he can revamp the platform. Uh, he wants to see Twitter being used to being able to purchase things and more and more um, interactions outside of just this idea of posting information. But the hard part here is that if we look at the evolution of social media, you know, CBC has been on Twitter since 2008. And they have found their way into spaces like TikTok, which obviously gets a lot of political conversation. But this is a political move. This is not, not having to do with media literacy. This has nothing to do with the idea of government funding of, of, of communication platforms. And so when it comes to Musk himself, the entity of Musk is one where users have to make a choice. Do you want to play based on his rules and of his arbitrary tra- changing of terms of service? And when it comes down to the idea of this as a whole, this isn't about CBC. This is just about any platform where you have a perception that people are going to say, finally, get rid of that state-funded media and uh, go favor other platforms that maybe will actually fund more and more Twitter advertisements. You know, I think the problem for me is not so much that uh, this happened first in the first place, uh, being labeled as government-funded, um, or or the reaction from the CBC to that, but it's just so damn simplistic. I mean, it's uh, it's it's almost like labeling something, grabbing a label, putting it on there, and having no explanation whatsoever. And it only you know hits the tip of the iceberg in a certain lens, and it just it's not even that it's inaccurate. It's just not complete. No, it's not. And the majority of Canadians who are in let's say a forty plus age demographic. We grew up watching the CBC. We didn't have full access to cable television. We got scratchy channels in the United States. The majority of our television viewing came from the CBC and, 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 and the French version of it, if you grew up in the right, the right parts of the province. The thing of it is, is that for me as a kid growing up, I mean, I was exposed to American media, but I never believed that CBC was this entity that was bigger or you know, po- you know, polarizing uh, Canadian voters. It gave information to produce Canadian content. And so in that space now, when we look at this idea even of NPR being flagged, is that the idea that taxpayers contribute into something that is part of our national identity. We, we see the same thing with the BBC. But the reality of it here is that these languages are a very, very political. And once you get the emboldened person who's angry about the perception of CBC leaning which way, left or right, or they favor true North media, whatever it is, rebel news, this is where you're going to get people talking. And if Musk needs to make money, he needs angry people on Twitter pushing buttons. Do you think he's going to do the same thing to the Beeb? Is the BBC next? <laughs> it could be. I think that's a harder, it's a harder target uh, in the sense of its, its range, its size. It's also its influence around the world. Uh, CBC, is, as, as influential as Canadians like to, like to believe, uh, CBC News uh, is not as, as wide-reaching uh, as the BBC. So if he, if he spins this around and goes after the BBC, it'll be interesting to see what the pushback looks like, especially in contrast with what laws look like in the, in the United Kingdom for operating the way Twitter does. 
We're talking with Jesse Miller, social media expert, founder of Mediated Reality, in light of the CBC saying goodbye, putting pause on Twitter for now, after Twitter decided to put the government-funded media label on CBC. Um, here's the interesting one that I really don't get. Uh, Twitter is Elon Musk trying to move this politically to the right because he fears that there may be an exodus to some of these other platforms? There, there could be, and the thing is, is that that pivot has actually probably started the day he took over the company. He uh, opened up dialogue about individuals who were right leaning, uh, who had a divisive language, who had been banned from the platform, being allowed back on. Um, and again, you know, this isn't necessarily about CBC. It's about the idea that we have publicly funded media. It's Canadian owned. Uh, it's not necessarily in the sense of conglomerates in any way, shape, or form. So when we look at things like post media, we look at Twitter itself. The reality of those, those organizations as media entities are owned by groups of individuals who invest in. And we look at the CBC as a Canadian piece. Um, NPR, very much the same way. National Public Radio, what do you want your, your information to be? And the majority of individuals are very comfortable getting news media from these kind of state uh, organizations, whether it's state in the sense of we're not relying, you know, replying to a government, you're replying to a nation idea, communication space. So within this idea of Musk going, okay, who are we going to get angry? He needs investors who are going to say, let's let's see how we get clicks, how we get people paying attention to something, how we get news media traveling. And when he bought the company, it was very, very evident that he wanted to basically stir the pot. He wanted people talking in that space. And those who are angry, those who are complaining, uh, are more than happy to kind of come back to that space, especially when we look at some of the failed platforms in right-wing media. A couple of power plays, one by Twitter. Yesterday, it labeled the CBC's social media accounts, Twitter accounts, government-funded news media outlets. In reaction to that today, CBC says... Bye-bye. It's uh, pausing its use of those Twitter accounts. We've been talking with Jesse Miller, who is a social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Also about to take your call, 604-280-9898, on your thoughts about these power plays. Jesse's with us, but let's go right to the phone calls. Jeff and Surrey, what do you think, Jeff? Hey, Bruce. I mean, I don't know how anyone can argue that the CBC's content isn't biased i mean anyone you can read it two minutes to read it i mean the stuff everyone else is reporting that happens to be critical of the government there's nothing to be seen on their website and another point i want to make on twitter is elon musk was like the the golden child of all the left-wing people making electric cars and then he happens to make a couple comments that go with the whole left-wing push and now suddenly he's a right-wing He's trying to trying to push everything right. I mean, come on, let's let's get serious here. This is getting stupid. Yeah, interesting, uh, Jeff and Surrey. Thanks, uh, Jesse. Your take on that? Listen, I never watched Lloyd Robertson and thought this guy was uh, giving me information based on on government uh, suggestion. Uh, the CBC, when it comes to news, has always. Uh, delivered an unbiased approach, but the reality of it is, yes, any news organization can be favoring aspects of the story and kind of suggest something where a reader looks at it and believes that the person writing it or they lean a certain way. We all have those biases. 
it's it's not going to sit there and say the organization as a whole is uh, is is leaning into a space to favor something. But the reality of it is, is that when listeners or viewers are watching something, you are very myopic because we choose to do those things. People choose a newspaper because they like the way it opens. They choose a station because they like the commercials that they see. The reality of it here when it comes to Musk, too, is the idea of left or right. Musk joined uh, Donald Trump's uh, presidential um, uh, advisory team. People did not like that because they believed he was favoring his opportunities for business. He's a businessman. He's not a, He's going to lean the way he thinks it's going to work for him as a person who is interested in making money. So within that, I mean, I, I as much as I might vote left lean, I don't look at it and go, hey, this guy Musk here is the worst person in the world. I believe that he's a billionaire, and the majority of billionaires favor themselves. It's not about left or right. It's Lots whether of calls. Favoring yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's go to one of those calls. Uh, Vancouver and Ryan. Ryan, what do you think? I think, first of all, Twitter needs to distinguish properly between publicly funded media and government-controlled media. They're not making a distinction now. It's a big difference between the CBC and, like, Russia today. Second of all, I think we need to keep in mind that Pierre Polyever asked for this label specifically because he wants to defund and eliminate the CBC. That's his claim. That's what he's running on. Uh, and I think that's quite dangerous. You know, I think Ryan makes a good point, and it gets back to what I was saying. It's oversimplistic with this one label, and uh, just to say government-funded, what does that mean? I mean, government-funded can extend to so many different ways, and is it a propaganda arm? Are you hinting? Are you trying to use a a bit of a dog whistle that's more audible than it should be? Because uh, government-funded really doesn't mean much. It needs more of an explanation, but you know what? I guess it uh, kind of got our attention Appreciate the phone call there. Um, let's take another one uh, before we get to Jesse Miller. In Vancouver, also, Dwayne. Dwayne, what's on your mind? Hi. I just make a comment. It's not really a national treasure. 3.9%. That's the viewing audience CBC has across Canada for its news channels. That's almost embarrassing, especially for $1.4 million. And I grew up in Alberta. You know, 40 years ago, no one watched the CBC. I don't care what the guy says. You know, no one I know watched the CBC. It, it's been in a bad spot for a long time. It really has. Okay, I appreciate the phone call there, Dwayne. want to get in, Jesse, for some final thoughts on this. Uh, where are we going after we start poking all the fingers, Jesse? You know, the anger from some people when it comes to the CBC is actually just what the CBC has dealt with for, for decades. Uh, just because Dwayne didn't watch the CBC or nobody he knew didn't doesn't mean that people across Canada don't. Uh, it produces great shows. There's great uh, opportunities for Canadian content to hit the world. So within that moving forward, yes, we probably get to, have to get away from the label of government funded. And Ryan, that caller, 100% on public funding. That's the thing that the NPR yeah. and CBC have experienced. Yeah, public so why, exactly. why does it have to be government? Yeah. Use a proper label. If you're going to use one, uh, start to do a little bit of thinking, perhaps. Jesse Miller, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.